Do you like being asked your opinion? Do you think that you might have some, you know, social insight into what's going on? I hope so, because I, I want you to think about this. Here, here's my question for you. What should people think of when they hear the term Christian? And if, if you're not a Christian, even better. Thanks for being here. Thanks for listening in. What does come to mind when you hear the term Christian? You hear somebody talking. Oh, yeah. Well, uh, he's a Christian. That's all you hear. You just broke into the middle of the conversation. What do you think? When you hear the word, what comes flying into your head? That new girl at work. I heard she's a Christian. What should come to your mind when you hear the term Christian? Last week, we talked about a word. It was the first part of this, this sort of countdown to Eastern. We used the word fearless. But that really doesn't come up, does it? That's not what you think of. That's not what people think of. But as we looked at the roots of Christianity, the big bang that started it all in motion, we saw that the tone was set, the bar was set, and it was set high. We said last time that uncertainty is unavoidable, but fearful is optional. And we see that come to life in Jesus, but we also saw that in the first century Christians. It's not that they didn't care about their lives, it's just that they trusted their future with their heavenly Father. They didn't fear death. They didn't fear illness. They didn't fear loss. Because we don't fear loss, it should be said of us that we are selfless. Because when you don't fear losing something, you become Selfless. When you don't fear losing something, you become generous. When you don't fear losing something, you become compassionate. We should be moving towards fearlessness. And in our fearlessness, we should be growing past surviving, moving to thriving, and comfortable with uncommon generosity. We don't fear loss. Wouldn't that be a great place to live to be comfortable in that? A Christian, that term means Jesus follower. It simply means Jesus follower. So a Christian should mean that we follow Jesus, right? You see how that kind of flows together there? And Jesus is not, was not, fragile. So his followers shouldn't be fragile either, which leads me to the question then, well, what's wrong with us? Maybe the better question is, what went wrong with us? Because in the first century, uh, when Christians began, uh, when Christianity began, Christians were almost irresistible. And the only reason that Christianity survived the first century through the persecution, through the targeted oppression of Rome and, and the temple, was because Christians were like Christ. Jesus liked people that he was nothing like. And people that were nothing like Jesus liked Jesus. In the first century, there was just something uh, about the community of Christians that, that made them almost irresistible. They were fearless, even though there was so much to fear. Well, what happened to us? Why is it that no longer do people think of us like that? Why is it that when you see or you hear Christians in the news, they are so frequently freaking out. Jesus must look at us and just, what? You live in Canada. 
still rank one of the best countries in the world to live. In some places, they would say it is still the number one country in the world to live. Why are we so worried about things that somewhere else would be called inconveniences? Have you forgotten who you follow? We're going to be taken into that world uh, by the author of Hebrews. So we're going to go to Hebrews chapter 11. This is, so if anyone ever asks you, what's the faith chapter in the Bible? You're going to say, Hebrews chapter 11 is the faith chapter. Because um, it focuses on it. And Hebrews is written by somebody. It has an author, but we don't know who it is. We are not sure. So uh, it's an ancient document. It's one of the first century manuscripts that was so important to the early church that they, they collected it and they, they copied it and they spread it around. They shared it. They wanted to make sure people could read it because it was so important. And it might have been written by a man. It might have been written by a woman. Today, as I refer to it, I'm going to say he just because I got to pick one. But we don't know who wrote it. But we do know that it was written to primarily Jewish Christians who were beginning to wonder, is it worth it? Is it working? Have you ever asked yourself the same questions about Christianity, about your faith? Is it worth it? Is it working? Is it working? Is, is it worth it to follow Jesus? It, it sometimes feels like there's so much that's at stake. I lose my job. My kids are mistreated. It's tough to follow Jesus. Is it worth it to follow Jesus? And then also, is it working? I mean, are, are we even making a difference? Now, here's something that we just can't imagine, all right? So this applies to, to you whether you're a Christian or not. And we uh, go 2,000 years ago. Nobody knew what was going to happen when this little group of people who, uh, who believed that somebody actually rose from the dead. There was, there was no guarantee. There was no, uh, there's no way that they could have imagined visiting a country like ours and seeing churches everywhere. That most people that you ran into, if they're married, they were married in some kind of a church. That, that they could not imagine that when people died, you would, you would gather together in chapels or, or churches to celebrate the life of the one who had died. They couldn't imagine that. Why? There, there were no church buildings. There was just a gathering of people hanging out together who believed that Jesus was the Savior, that Jesus was the Son of God, and that he actually physically rose from the dead. And that wasn't easier to believe then than it is now. They believed this because they had either met someone who saw the resurrected Jesus or they had met someone who met someone who spent time talking with the resurrected Jesus. Because what we're talking about here is only 30, 40, 50, 60 years after the resurrection. So they had no idea. Where is this going to go? Is this going to spread beyond our town? Are we just kidding ourselves? Are we putting our lives at risk for nothing? Are we lying to our children? Is it worth it? Is it working? And so the author of Hebrews writes to the first century audience and he says, absolutely. You just got to wait and see. So here's the beginning. Uh, we're going to go to the beginning of chapter 11 if you want to follow there. Not the beginning of the whole manuscript, just chapter 11. So you've probably heard 
this before, uh, whether or not this is your, your tradition or not, you've probably heard at least this first verse in some part previously. So hopefully this sounds a little bit familiar. Now, faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. That's the biblical definition of faith. But you know what? That's just the definition of faith. Any kind of faith. There's not magic biblical faith. There's just faith. So everyone who's ever had a job, everyone who uh, has a job now, you've experienced this whole faith thing, right? It means when, when you took your job, you, you sat down with somebody and, and they said, all right, this is how much we're going to pay you per hour. They slid the paper across the desk and they said, this is, this is your salary right here. And then you look at that and they look over, they come over to the calendar and they check, yeah, I mean, let me see, yeah, two weeks. Two weeks, that's the schedule. In two weeks, you're going to get a check. Or in two weeks, we're going to put a direct deposit into your account. And then you went to work. You went to work confident that you were going to get this payment. That's what you were hoping for. You were assured that they were going to come through. You worked as if at the end they were going to pay you the end of the pay period. That's what faith is. It's confidence in someone that they're going to keep their promise. And that's where we stop and we kind of jump from there. So what, what's in, what follows is, is important. So we're, we're going to jump. Um, no, we're not jumping yet. Just first verse again. Now faith is confidence in uh, what we hope for, an assurance of what we do not see. This is what the ancients were commended for. Now the author goes on. And he, and, he, and he lists, right? And he goes back to the beginning, all the way back to the beginning of the Old Testament for us or what they would call the Jewish scriptures for him. And he begins to talk about all these famous people, all the Old Testament people that we grew up hearing stories about. And there was Noah and there was Abraham and Isaac and Joseph and, and Moses and all these incredible people with incredible stories. And he says that all of these people were commended not because they came up with something and then they tried to convince God, they talked God into it. That's magic. They were commended because God made a promise and they lived as if God was going to keep his promise. Faith is simply confidence that God is going to do what God has promised he is going to do. And walking by faith or living by faith is simply living your life every single day as if God can be trusted. And God will keep his promises. Now we jump. Phase two. So we jump down a couple of verses. Now we're at 13. All these people, he lists all those people, were still living by faith, still getting up every single day, believing that God was going to keep his promises. They were still believing that when they died. They never got their paycheck. They lived their whole life trusting God, living as if he was going to keep his promises, and they never were able to witness God coming through and fulfilling the promise. They did not receive the things promised. They only saw them and welcomed them from a distance. That's referring to what God said to Abraham. If you know any of this story, uh, God told Abraham, I'm going to create a family. I'm going, to, I'm going to create a nation through you. And the whole world will be blessed 
through you. Abraham never saw that fulfilled. Isaac never saw that fulfilled. Jacob, Joseph, Moses, none of them got to see that fulfilled. And generation after generation passed. But there was always a core. There was always a remnant of people who remained faithful, absolutely faithful to God, trusting Him because they believed that God was going to come through. He was going to do what he said he was going to do. And now, this is so convicting to us. If you hear this kind of thing, you go, wow. Because you pray on Monday, right? And if God hasn't shown up by Thursday, I'm not sure there's a God anymore, right? Seriously, God, I gave you like four days. And then I understand, I'll give you an extension, right? So he's, God, I know you're busy. I know you've got a lot going on in the world right now. And honestly, I know that there's some of these situations you're going to need to uh, put a little bit more input into. Fine, I'll give you another week. Now, I don't think I'm being unreasonable here, God. I already gave you a time and then I've extended that time. I understand, I'm trying to be understanding. But then God doesn't answer your prayer, right? And she gets sick anyway. Or something bad happens. And then we just have a a theological meltdown, which kind of sounds like us stamping our feet sometimes. This is just not right. How can I believe in a God who is just so untrustworthy? And the champions of the, of the faith hall of fame are, you know, looking back on their lives and they're listening to our stories and then asking themselves, go, what was that all about? We lived our entire lives trusting God and we never saw the completion of his promise. But we trusted him anyway. And then to make just a little bit more clear with these people, what happened and what they went through, he goes on in verse 36, he says, some faced jeers and flogging. Last time we talked about what flogging was and even chains and imprisonment. They were put to death by stoning. They were sawed in two. They were killed by the sword. They went about in goatskins, sheepskins, destituted, persecuted, and mistreated. And then I think there's kind of a brief pause that comes up there. there was, that was a list of facts. Those things happened. Historical happenings. But what did it mean? What what did that show? What did that prove? And then it it sounds like ah, the emotion of all these stories from all these characters and their hard-fought lives comes boiling up to the top. And he considers all of the different moments, all the different sacrifices, all of the, the, the tiny private moments that would have had to have been fought through. What did they, what if they had given up? What if they had been unfaithful? And now now he gets to look back on history from the other side of the resurrection. And his assessment, he says, the world was not worthy of them. Maybe, Maybe he thinks back to some of his own complaints, his own gripes. Maybe he's considering his own frustrations when God didn't come through by Thursday. And then he reflects back in admiration on these characters. These real flesh and blood people. The world was not worthy of them. Because there was once a version of faithfulness to God that elicited heroic living. That caused others to stop and to stare. They might not believe everything that those other people believe. They might not have the same weekend plans that those other people had. But they would look on in wonder. They would look on in admiration. Rich and poor, 
masters and slaves, men and women and children. It was people from all different walks of life. They were Jews and they were Gentiles. And it grew. And it grew. And that's why we are here today. There was once upon a time a version of faithfulness to God that was awe-inspiring. These were all commended for their faith, yet none of them received what they had been promised. Talking again about all those Old Testament characters. Since God had planned something better for us. Hey, look at that. Someone's writing about you in the Bible. You appear. This this was written to first century people, but it was to post-resurrection followers. And we're post-resurrection followers. The reason that God did not do what they hoped that he would do in their lifetimes was because God had something bigger and better in store. It wasn't just for them. It really was actually for the entire world. And here we are now halfway around the world from where this was written, from where these activities have taken place. And we're, we're celebrating a Jewish carpenter. God was up to something so big, so international, so multicultural, so multilingual that these people couldn't possibly comprehend how big the plan was that God had. But they remained faithful. So that only together with us would they be made perfect. And we say perfect in this case, what the perfect refers to is that um, the completion of God's plan. Quick summary, okay? So we have all the people in the Old Testament, right? They were looking forward and they were faithful. They, they, they were looking forward to what God was going to do. And they were faithful, even though they didn't see the plans come fully together. We're on the other hand, we're looking back at history. And we're fearful. Why are we so afraid? God made a promise to Abraham and he fulfilled it through Christ. Jesus has risen from the dead. The church will launch and survive and then thrive. And here we are 2,000 years later. There is so much evidence for us. There is so much reason for us to engage with our faith. There's no real reasons to be fearful. We should be some of the most fearless, confident, humble, generous people on the planet. Not because of what God promised, but because of what God has done. We're on the other side of that promise, right? So now, in light of all that's happened, the author is saying, let, let me show you what, what to do. And that translates into that word, therefore, all right? In light of what God has done, therefore, in light of what God, uh, keeping his promise, um, all these men and all these women were faithful before, um, they lived before God fulfilled his promise. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, and he's referring now to all of the Old Testament saints, but for us, it's even better because our cloud of witness includes them, but it also includes all of the New Testament people as well, like the Apostle Paul, who risked his life over and over again. Like the, the Apostle Peter, who was eventually crucified by Nero because of his faith. Matthew, who gave up his lucrative business to follow Jesus. And all of the others who went all over 
the, the, the known world, but they followed the Mediterranean rim, sharing the extraordinary news of how their lives had been changed, what they had seen, what they had heard. Thomas, even good old doubting Thomas, got on his horse and he took a ride all the way to India where he died sharing his faith. They are now part of a cloud of witnesses. Then beyond that first generation, the second and third century Christians. And then j- jump ahead to the 15th and the 16th century Christians. They translated the New Testament into, uh, into the language of the peoples of Europe. The reason that you, that we are able to read the Bible in English is because there was a group of people who risked their lives, who were burned at the stake and died because they remained faithful to God. These amazing cloud of witnesses speaks to us and they, they remind us, they shout to us, God can be trusted. It's worth it. And it is working. And since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, what should we do? He does not say, let us hide, whine, complain, Hoard our resources just in case. Put our Bibles in a drawer. Build bomb shelters. Purchase ammunition. Blame the cops. Blame the prime minister. Blame the teachers. Blame the media. Blame our mamas. Demand our rights. Build a wall. Tax the rich. Play it safe. Find someone to sue. Take back our country. Pray that Jesus would return so that we won't have to suffer. That was not the plan. Can you imagine how we sound to this great cloud of witnesses? You're worried about what? So here's what the author says to us. He he says, uh, in the midst of our anxiety, in the midst of our uh, losing focus on the mission that we have been given, reports say churches are closing. Newspapers say Christianity is in decline. Apparently nobody cares about the Bible anymore. What has happened to this world we're living in? Why can't it be like the old days? Here's what we get reminded. We have a role to play. It's not up to someone else somewhere else. So let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles instead of blaming and instead of being critical and instead of finding and identifying what everyone else is doing wrong, you need to look in the mirror and ask yourself some questions. What's holding me back? Why am I not all in? Why do I think it's okay to blame someone else? The darker it gets, the brighter the light shines. The more uncertain things are, the certainty of things shines more brightly. And this one is a little bit more behind the scenes, behind your curtain. How about this? What are you afraid of really? Not what you say you're afraid of, but what are you afraid of really? What really worries you? What is it that you need to throw off? What is it that you need to leave behind? What is it that's hindering you from uh, embracing the uncertainty and, and moving into it fearlessly? What is it that's hindering you from being a follower of Jesus? Do you want to know the answer to that? Because if you don't, why not? Why don't you want to know what makes you reluctant? What are you holding on to? 
Is it helping you? Is it hurting you? God kept his promise to Abraham. God, through Abraham, did something for the entire world. We are on the other side of it. Whom shall we fear? And let us run the race with perseverance. We don't back down. We know up front that there will be challenge. We know at the outset that there will be ongoing adversity. So why are we so surprised when it happens, when it pops up? For, for our generation, for the Christians that are living in Stouffville, living in York region right now, we have something that we are called to do. We have a culture that is very specific to us. We have a very specific difference to make that somebody else can't make. It's up to us to make that. The question is, are we up for it? Are we going to join the complaint bandwagon, the blame wagon, somebody else's fault? Those are not hard to join. It looks like they're always recruiting. I always need somebody else to complain about something. If only, why can't it be, woe is me. Somewhere along the line, I met a Christian. They didn't do this well. And I can't forget them. My eyes keep going back to them and what they did. I can't seem to wash it off. So the challenge is that we throw off everything that is in the way of our faith. Will we throw off everything, every excuse that we have been making? And will we join with the people who came before us and lived those fearless, confident lives? And while you're doing that, while you're preparing that, let me, let me tell you the key. This is what the author is saying to us. Here's the key that you just can't forget. When you are leaning in and seeking to make a, a difference and to be fearless and, and confident and generous, he says, fixing our eyes on Jesus. And this is where we break down time and again. We, we, we let our eyes stay fixed on all the wrong things. Our eyes are fixed on safety and security and feeling good. And who in the heck can we blame for what's going on? What's, what's going wrong in our lives? What's going wrong in our culture? What's going wrong in our country? What's going wrong in our world? And as long as our eyes are fixed there, we will not run with endurance. We will be scared. We will miss our opportunity. We will miss our responsibility to be a light to our culture. So what are your eyes fixed on? Are your eyes fixed on your safety? On your security? On your wealth? And all the stuff that our culture keeps telling us that we should look at? And with your eyes fixed on all that, do you say little prayers like, Dear Heavenly Father, would you please, please look at that? Would you, would you give me more of that, please? I, I don't want you so much as I want you to give me more of that. And as long as that's what you're doing, and as long as that's what holds your gaze, you are never going to fulfill your purpose. Until you go eyes up. Until you fix your eyes on Jesus. Jesus becomes the point of reference that everything else is made in decision to. What would Jesus do? What would Jesus say? How would Jesus respond? Focusing Thoughts, words, and actions around Jesus changed the world once. It can happen again. But not if you're afraid. Eyes up. Fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer, the one who kicked off this whole thing and perfecter of our faith, the one who fulfilled the promise to Abraham, 
the one who fulfilled the promises that the Old Testament was pointing towards. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame. See, the problem with crucifixion isn't just the pain. We talked a little bit about this last time too, but a major problem with crucifixion was the shame. That's the way it was designed. Uh, Living in in Roman-occupied first century, no doubt uh, Jesus, as a little boy, had smelled a crucifixion before he ever saw one. And Jesus, as as he was growing up in Judea, had heard the wails and and the moans and the cries of pain. And Jesus, along with the whole community, understood the terror that was associated with crucifixion. He understood the shame. He had seen what happened to a body as it hung there day after day after day. Jesus knew this. Jesus understood what was involved. He'd seen it. He'd smelled it. He'd heard it. And then on Palm Sunday, he walked right into it for you for me and he sat down at the right hand of the throne of God so consider him eyes up on him fix your eyes on him focus on him who endured such opposition from sinners so that and here's the goal part here's the purpose here's the the why that drove him so that you will not grow weary and lose heart so that you will not conclude it's not worth it. It's not working. Now, practical application. I want to say a couple of things to a couple of different groups of people. First, for those of you who are 45 and older, I'm in this group. This is a message to me as well. Many of you, many of us, many of the people that you circulate with have grown weary and have lost heart. You're frustrated. And the reason is that you've fixed your eyes on a political system. You've fixed your eyes on a political leader. You've fixed your eyes on the, on the good old days. You've fixed your eyes on the economy. You were growing weary. And you're frustrated. And you can't keep that quiet anymore. And you need to knock it off. I'll tell you why. You're scaring the children. You are. You're scaring them on Facebook with the posts and with the comments. You're scaring them with your under-the-breath comments. You're scaring them with the pronouncements. The generation coming after us will take its cues from us. And here's the cue we're sending. Oh my goodness, if we don't get the right political leader, it's the end of the world. If we don't fix the economy, it's the end of the world. If we don't have religious freedom like my grandmother had religious freedom, it's the end of the world. If we don't get the right laws passed, if we don't get the right policies focused on, everything is just going to come crashing down. Nothing can be further from the truth. Government matters and policies matter and laws matter. But none of them matter as much as men and women who understand and manifest this word, faith. Confidence that God keeps his promises and that nothing can thwart the plans of God. We have seen this in the Old Testament. 
We know this from the New Testament. We know this because at one time the most powerful person in Judea looked at Jesus and said, what is truth? Crucify him. Game over. It's done. Let's move on. And the only reason that you know who Pilate is, the only reason you know who Pilate was, is because you know the story of Jesus. Pilate, the governor, the important guy, becomes a footnote in the story of Jesus. Most of the first century people that you know about, all you know about them, you know because of the story of Jesus. You have nothing to fear. So if you're over 45 and this is a struggle for you, knock it off. We need to model for the next generation that God is in control, that God can be trusted, that get involved in politics, get involved in government, get involved in your community, but never fix your eyes there. You fix your eyes on Jesus. That's the story that we tell. Now, for those of you who are under 45, do not grow weary and lose heart. Don't fix your eyes on social media and don't fix your eyes on Ottawa. Don't fix your eyes on my generation. Do not grow weary and lose heart. Because once upon a time, a group of people your age embraced a resurrected Savior. They embraced the teaching of the resurrected Savior and a group of people from your generation who were your age changed the world. And they did it through faith. And they did it through the behaviors attached to that faith. Then just to finish off setting the tone and offering the perspective, the author of Hebrews provides us one, one more insight. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. Keep some perspective. Eyes up. Step up. Step in because you have been invited to follow the promise-keeping God. And there was a whole host of people who followed way back here before the promises were kept. And you, you're on the other side. You have every reason to be fearless, to be confident, to be generous. You can live your life in such a way that the people who don't consider Jesus consider Jesus because of the way that you live your life. Imagine a generation of Christians where once again it could be said, the world was not worthy of them. Would you like to be part of that generation? I do. It doesn't matter who the prime minister is. It doesn't matter what happens in any election cycle, whether it's federal, provincial, or municipal. It doesn't matter if we can't recapture the good old days, and it doesn't matter what happens to the economy, all those things. Of course they're important. But we have an opportunity to run the race set out for us. And if you begin, we can't be consistently afraid. 
It happens when we begin to live with the confidence, not the arrogance, the confidence that God is for us, that God loves us. And so let's continue to make that our mission, that the world may know that God loves them, that Jesus died for them and is for them still today. Heavenly Father, we know that things can be easy to say and even easy to listen to, but they're still so hard to live out. We want to get this right. Will you please give each of us wisdom to do what you are calling us to do? Will you please allow me to reflect your kindness, your character, your confidence, your generosity, your passion, and your fearlessness? Then please follow up with us. Don't make it a one-time shot. Give us the courage and then the opportunity to act and reflect you. Help us to see our interruptions as opportunities and then to seize our opportunities. Be at work in us and through us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.